Well, good morning. I greet you as we enter our third week of lockdown here in South Africa, and I do so from our kitchen, this makeshift studio that we're getting by with, complete with smartphone camera, and almost more importantly, a Lego camera stand, a building that was the crowning achievement of my week so far. Today is Good Friday, and in these trying and tumultuous times, I'm sure we're all looking to a Good Friday message for a message of hope and assurance of good in the world. And so we should, because Good Friday is a beacon of hope. But have you ever stopped to consider why it is that Good Friday is Good Friday? After all, on Good Friday, we stop to commemorate a death, and not the peaceful and serene death of a wise and venerable ruler at a ripe old age surrounded by admirers and close friends and family. Rather, the death of Jesus, a horrible, violent, brutal death, one the ancient world considered just about the most shameful and painful form of execution a person could suffer, one reserved for criminals and outcasts. And not a metaphorical death, but a literal fact of history, flesh and blood death, a death documented by Christian and non-Christian historians alike can seem so senseless, so vicious, so needless. What could make this death good? What makes the seemingly very, very bad Friday Good Friday? Well, these are good questions, and today we're going to look at two passages from the Bible to help us fully frame that question and to answer it. So do have a Bible close at hand, because we're going to look at these two passages in some detail. Our first passage is from Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Here we find Jesus entering the Garden of Gethsemane. He has just shared the Last Supper with his disciples. And he's a few hours away from his arrest, trial and crucifixion. So read with me from verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take a rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, if the term Good Friday to describe these events is confusing, then I'm sure the scene in Matthew must be even more so. After all, here we see Jesus, the Eternal Son, the one in whom the Almighty Father is pleased, the one who calmed the storms, 
who healed the sick, who gave sight to the blind, on his knees, on his face even, in distress at the prospect of drinking this cup, pleading with the Father three times that this terrible cup should pass from him, if possible. And we see Jesus sorrowful and troubled, sorrowful to the point of death. We can perhaps start to appreciate how terrible the prospect of drinking this cup must be. I don't know if you've ever truly dreaded some event that was rapidly approaching and you had that sickening feeling in the pit of your stomach. Perhaps that can just start to give us an inkling of how Jesus is feeling as he appeals three times to the Almighty Father that this should pass, if possible. But what is this cup? Why is it so terrible? And why is it not possible for it to pass? Surely everything is possible for God. The context of this passage and the preceding and following ones make it clear that the, the cup is, has something to do with the cross, with Jesus' crucifixion. But what exactly? Why does the Father not prevent this atrocity? In fact, Jesus' prayer seems to suggest that in some way the Father might actually will it. Well, the answers to these questions and the extent to which you will view Good Friday as truly good depend on what you make of the cross. Was it simply an unfortunate event in history, an innocent man butchered at the hands of the powerful of the time? Or some similarly random and unfortunate event? Well, thankfully, that is not what the Bible makes of it. Thankfully, because none of those would be reasons for this Friday to be good. In fact, this Friday would be utterly bad Friday, miserable Friday, evil Trump's good Friday. But Jesus' followers tell a very different story. And the Apostle Paul is at the center of that telling of what happens at the cross. And at the center of Paul's telling is a passage in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 26. And I'll read that for us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here Paul gives us a deep insight into the cross and we'll see three important things here. First, the cross is about God's righteousness. Secondly, the cross is about our sin. And third, the cross is about God's grace. Let's start with God's righteousness. Now when we see a passage such as this one speak of the blood of Jesus, we see that in verse 25, we can be sure that it is talking about Jesus' death on the cross. And here twice in verse 25 and in verse 26, Paul tells us that the cross shows God's righteousness. Righteousness is a state of rightness, of being and doing what is right, of being just in everything that one does and is. And Paul tells us that what happens on the cross shows us somehow that God is righteous. Well, without doubt, we would all want that to be true of the supreme being in the universe. We must all surely desire a universe that is superintended by a fundamentally just, 
and righteous being. We want a universe that is fundamentally just and right. Not one where there is no real justice and no real rightness, where good and evil pass unnoticed, and what is, just is. Perhaps we in South Africa have a particular appreciation for the devastating effects that a power without righteousness can have. But thankfully, God describes himself as just, as doing right, as dispensing justice. And for any of us who have been wronged, who've been their victim or suffered evil, we should rejoice, we should be grateful and thankful that God is just and not unjust, and that he will set right the wrongs that have been done. I'm sure that when you see injustices, you, like me, scream out for justice to be done. We hate to see the effects of evil on ourselves, on the lives of people we love, and even complete strangers. Something deep within us is repulsed at injustice, and we long to see things set right. And so when Paul tells us that God is righteous, that is good news. But the cross is also about our sin. Because our passage starts by telling us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing to be sinned against, and it's a terrible thing to sin. Sin is the opposite of righteousness. It's unrighteousness. It's being and doing what is not right. And sin is an absolute affront to the divine image that we were all created in. We were all created in God's image to be like him, and in so doing and so being, to reflect his glory. We were made to be righteous like God is righteous. When we are sinned against, it's an affront to the dignity and value that is inherent in every person. But equally, when we sin, we similarly affront the dignity and value that we were created with. At sin's core is law-breaking, a breaking of God's divine law, summed up supremely by Jesus as loving God and loving others. This lawlessness comes out in our actions, but the Bible insists the root of it lies in a heart that is antagonistic to God and his law. Our actions are bred out of our heart. What we say and what we do are products of what we are in our heart. And how dark must our heart be when we see that even through the filters of our best efforts to be good, we still produce actions and thoughts and words that we're thoroughly ashamed of. Perhaps one of the most unpopular messages of the messages of the Bible today is that we are all sinners, that we've all sinned. It's surprising though that this should be contentious because surely all of us will acknowledge that we've fallen short of our own moral codes. I certainly have. And in that sense, we're all hypocrites. We don't do what we say we and others should. Perhaps we see this most clearly when things aren't going our way. When things are going our way, perhaps we can be as good as gold, as nice as you can uh, possibly imagine. But what happens when things don't go our way? Well, so often we get nasty. We do and say and think the worst things. And these things we do, the things we say, the things we think, reveal a heart that is bent in on our own interests. Augustine describes sin as man bent in on himself, obsessed by his own interests and concerns. Sometimes it's even when things are going good. When things are going well, we can develop a sense of superiority and arrogance that 
actually repulses us when we see it in others, but we seem blind to our own sin. So we're all guilty of breaking our own moral code. But worse still, I'm sure when we reflect on it, we'll see that our own moral codes are less than perfect. There's an element of self-service in them. and Maybe that's what makes them so easy to break. So if we acknowledge that there must be a higher code than our own, and that we regularly fall short of our own code, how far short do we fall of God's higher law? Very far short, I imagine. Maybe I was wrong then earlier to say that the point that we have all sinned is the most unpopular Christian teaching. Maybe what is really the most unpopular position is that there are real consequences to our sin. Somewhere implicit in our code is a position that only other people's law-breaking is a problem. Ours isn't. Maybe this is one of the reasons that we can know for certain that there's a higher law than our own. Because fundamentally our own is unjust. It doesn't hold a firm and equal rule. It's everyone else who is too angry, who swears too much, who is too greedy or drinks too much or gossips too much or is immoral or is a hater or this or that. But not us. We long for justice to be done to others but not to ourselves. But here Paul tells us what is obviously true, that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and there are very real consequences for that. God the just judge is and must be as repulsed by our sin as we are repulsed by the sin of others. And his righteous anger burns and he decrees dire consequences because of our sin. In Ephesians 2, Paul will tell us that because of our sin, we are dead, enemies of God, and by nature, objects of wrath. Wrath. The idea of God being angry at sin, of him having wrath and being our enemy, might seem strangely at odds with a God of love. I mean, how can a God of love view me as his enemy? How can he have feelings of wrath or anger towards me? But again, a moment's reflection must show us that anger and wrath are completely in keeping with the God of love. Not an anger or wrath that is fanciful or capricious or random, but a just and right and deserving anger and wrath. I mean, think of the person that you love and care for most in this world. Now think of someone performing the most heinous act of cruelty or brutality against them. Are you unmoved? Do you stand by and laugh? Do you shrug your shoulders? Do you just let it slide? Or are you angered by it? Do you long to see justice done? I'm sure you do. And so does God. Because he loves. Because he loves his creation and hates to see it trampled underfoot. And because he is just. God isn't angry at perfectly righteous and good people. There are none. He is rightly and justly angry with sinners like me and dare I say it like you and so our sin rightly separates us from him we are exiled from his presence his anger burns against us and now we find ourselves in a pickle we long for a just universe but in a just universe our injustices our sins have very real and unpleasant consequences for us in fact at this stage the fact that God is righteous and just and all those other good things, well, that's not good for news for us at all, in fact. In fact, it's very bad news. 
But fortunately, this is not the end of the story. Because God sees us oppressed and oppressing, sinning against and sinned against, just in a giant mess. And he takes pity. And out of his great love, he acts. And so we see this in our third point, that the cross is about God's grace. Let's return to the start of our passage in Romans and read it from the start. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Well, if righteousness means doing what is right, then justified means being made what is right. It's to declare something right. So let's read that again then. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Do you see a problem there? All have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. All deserve wrath and death and exile. But are justified. The guilty are justified. The guilty are declared right. But how can that be? How can God be both just and justify? Well, thankfully, isn't that exactly the question that is posed and answered in verse 26, where Paul says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier. Perhaps Jesus' question in the garden about whether something might or might not be possible starts to creep into our minds here. So we must ask, what is it in verse 26 that has made it possible for God to be both the just and the justifier? Well, the key lies in the word propitiation in verse 25, sometimes translated atoning sacrifice or sacrifice of atonement. A propitiation is a sacrifice that appeases the righteous anger of God at sin. It's a sacrifice that completely, totally and permanently bears and extinguishes God's wrath for your sin. This is the staggering claim of the Bible about what happens at the cross. Because if God is going to declare you justified and himself be just, he must utterly and completely deal with your sin and its consequences. Put another way, it is not possible even for God, especially for God, to justify you without dealing with your sin. And Jesus does this by taking upon himself the penalty that is ours. This is the cup that Jesus is referring to when he is praying in the garden. The Bible in several places refers to the metaphor of a cup of God's wrath, where all of God's righteous indignation and just fury at the evil that takes place in the world is poured. I mean, look around the world and look at your own life and consider how bitter that cup must be. So bitter that in the garden we see Jesus in distress at the very prospect, at the very thought of drinking it. But he drinks it all the way to the bottom so that we don't have to. And there God's wrath falls on Jesus 
so that it doesn't have to fall on us. God shows himself righteous in that he will not let sin go unpunished. Where the sins committed before Jesus, as mentioned in verse 25, or after, God is just. God is righteous. But God is also gracious. And this is why the Bible writers insist that the cross is the supreme gesture of love. Not that a good person died for another good person, but that a good person died for bad people, bad people like me. And not in spite of the fact that I am bad, but for that very reason, because we are bad, so that he might bring us back to himself. He might bring me back. He might bring you back. And in fact, the Bible insists that the cross is at the center of a cosmic regeneration project. And this is why Good Friday is so, so good. Because if death and exile and wrath were the consequences of sin, the consequences of justification are redemption, as we see in verse 24. Those who will accept it by faith are redeemed, redeemed from the terrible consequences of being alienated from God. They're now reconciled with God, brought near, given eternal life, and assured of God's eternal love and affection. Washed of the shame, washed of the guilt, declared righteous and justified. And that means, come what may, come viruses, come economic ruin, come death even, we are assured of God's love and affection for us. In the garden and on the cross, we find assurance of that, that no matter how bitter the cup was, and it was so bitter, Jesus was willing to drink it for me and for you. But as I finish, let us not forget the closing part of the passage. See those words. For those that have faith in Jesus. For those who will put their trust in Jesus. Who will take him at his word. Who will agree, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I have fallen short. Yes, I do deserve those things. But yes, I accept what you have done for me. I believe you. I will follow you. Verse 25 described the this redemption and propitiation as a gift to be accepted by faith. And so this is a question for every one of us this Good Friday, as we reflect on Jesus in the garden and on Jesus on the cross. Will we put our trust in him? Will we accept this gift of grace by faith and be declared just? And all the good benefits that come with it, reconciliation, washed of guilt, washed of shame, brought close to God. Will this Friday be for you the best of Fridays?